Good morning. It's good to be here this morning. Um, just thought of something here actually, or was reminded of it again a little bit from Brother Kim, and I just wanted to, you know, every Sunday when we go pray, I always pray and I always thank the Lord for this opportunity to gather. We have the freedom as a church to gather and worship the Lord together uh, week after week, and it truly is a grace from the Lord to be able to do that. And um, the reason, one of the reasons we have the freedom to do that is because we had uh, many soldiers who gave their life years ago, and we have Remembrance Day yesterday, and we were remembering that, and so it's good to remember why some of these freedoms exist that we have, and I know Kim has served in the military for a number of years, a big part of his life, so thank you for your service, Kim. <clears throat> I'm excited to preach this morning. Believe it or not, it's been a while. It's been a long time, actually. I'm not quite sure when the last time was, but it's, uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to share God's Word with us this morning. And I'm going to be preaching out of the book of Philippians, and this morning's passage is a great reminder of the Lord's grace upon us, and exactly that again. Um, it's not only in salvation, but in providing the means of sanctification in, an, in our individual lives that we, as we seek to grow in His holiness. And so that is the grace of the Lord, and we're thankful for that. Philippians chapter 2, if you could turn with your, if, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and we will look at chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> And so to introduce this passage, I want, us, I want to just remind us of the context of these two verses. And the context starts back in chapter 1, verse 27. And if you look there, he's, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so he was calling them to walk in a manner that was worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul led by example in this for the church. And he was... He was in prison because of his faithful service to Jesus Christ as he was writing this letter. In chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And so Paul was always about walking worthy of the gospel. It was fruitful labor for the Lord. The saving grace of Jesus Christ in his life was always the motivation for Paul to walk in a worthy manner of that gospel. The truth of the gospel was his motivation to walk. To walk and to go and to live in such a way that truly reflected the gospel. And Paul was reminding the church that the gospel was to be their motivation. To live in true unity in the church in chapter 1 verses 27 to 30. And if you remember back to my messages, then some of this will ring true. It was the Unity of the church in chapter 1, verse 27 to 30. Then in chapter 2, from verses 1 to 4, we were reminded that our encouragement in Christ and our comfort from His love and the gift of the Holy Spirit was to be our motivation to have that same kind of love for one another. Counting others more significant than ourselves. Looking out for the interests of others. And so we see... The Paul is saying in chapter 2, verse 1, that if you have what God promised to all who believe in him, if you have that encouragement in Christ, if you have that comfort and love, that participation of the Holy Spirit, then the result of that gospel truth in our lives should and will bring about unity in verse 2. It'll bring about humility in verse 3, and it'll bring about the service in verse 4. And then in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our example, and we are commanded to have this mind among ourselves. That is a command from the Lord. We are to have a mind that, as we read on in chapter 2, is a mind of true humility, true service, and true obedience to God the Father. This kind of humble service and obedience took Jesus all the way to the cross. He died a shameful death as one who was completely perfect in all ways and without sin. He had the wrath of God poured out on him for sinners such as we are. He died for our sins that are against a holy God who demands righteousness. 
Christ died for our sins. He did what we can't do. He paid for those sins. And I just want to read this passage for us again, just to remind us of what Jesus Christ really did for us. If you look at chapter 2, verse 5 of Philippians, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, I am convinced that if we could truly understand the depths of our sin, if we could truly understand the height of what it truly cost our Lord and Savior to pay for these sins, then we would make every effort to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of that gospel. The cost was so great that when Jesus prayed on the Mount of Olives before his arrest, his sweat became like great drops of blood. It was such a heavy burden for him to bear, and still, through it all, he remained faithful to the Father. He understands what it takes to stand for truth in the face of adversity. Then we come to verse 9 of chapter 2, and and it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and has bestowed on him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will in true humility, and the Father exalted him to the highest possible place. And so just to recap what we've just covered there, we have have Jesus Christ as the obedient servant who willingly left his Father's side. He came into this world He took on the form of a man. He went all the way to the cross to pay for our sins. And as a result, he has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And every knee will one day bow before him as Lord. And this means that he is the Lord. And we will stand before him someday, and we will give an account about how we have lived our lives here on earth. Either as Christians who have trusted in him alone for our salvation, or as enemies of God. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So he was given all authority. And when we enter eternity, we will bow our knees before him, either as our Lord and Savior or as our eternal judge. And so when we think of all that, when we think of all that, starting back at verse 27 of chapter 21, with that call to walk worthy, the call to live in in unity as the church, based on the gift of salvation we have in Christ and the encouragement that we receive from the gift of salvation and then the ultimate example that we have in Christ Jesus himself as he humbled himself in true servanthood and obedience and then the exaltation of Christ and then the knowledge that we will someday stand before him. We will bow before him. With all that in mind, we've come to the passage that we want to look at this morning. And that is chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 of Philippians. And it says, therefore, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so in light of everything we've seen up until this point in, the flip, uh, in Philippians, in light of everything Christ did for us, how he was exalted how we will stand before him someday as Lord, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He is calling them to grow in holiness. He wants their obedience to be directed in such a way that promotes spiritual growth and personal holiness. We are to work out what God is doing on the inside for his good pleasure. He gives them a a reason to be obedient. And then he says how it works to be obedient. And then he gives them the source of their obedience and then the result of their obedience. And because of this, I've titled my message, Obedient Sanctification. And these are the four points that I want to look at this morning. Number one, the reason for obedience. Number two, the work of obedience. 
Number three, the source of obedience. And then number four, the result of obedience. So number one, the reason for obedience. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so the reason is found in the therefore, or the so then, some versions might say. Therefore connects this to the previous verses. The verses we looked at in chapter 2 from verses 5 to 11, where Jesus came in the form of a man and he went all the way to the cross. And I won't go into this again since we looked at it in the introduction, but Paul wants the reader here to understand that the message of the cross is the only motivation that we should ever need to live in obedience, to obey the word of God. Paul calls them his beloved or beloved, expressing his affection for them as brothers and sisters in Christ. But more than that, he acknowledges them as fellow Christians. He is reassuring them that the gift of the gospel was indeed given to them, and they are loved by none other than God himself. In Romans chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes to all those who are loved by God and called to be saints. And the word loved here is the same word that Paul uses in, the, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And so when Paul calls them beloved in chapter 2, verse 12 of Philippians, he's talking of those who have experienced the love of Christ in their lives. And re, uh, remember in chapter 1, verse 29, where it says, For it has been granted to, to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It was granted. It is granted without merit. And the ability to understand and to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord was a gift. Making them beloved. Making them loved. God loved them. And he wants them to understand that they were dead. And now they have life. And so Paul wants them again to think about what it means to be beloved. That's why he's reminding them again what it means to have been granted this amazing gift of salvation. Again, chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. And if you have read Acts chapter 16, then you have likely remembered the account of how the gospel came to Philippi. Paul tried, he was on his way to Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit did not allow them to go there. And it was in a vision at night that Paul was directed to go to Philippi. We know this as the Macedonian call. Then Lydia and her household believed the gospel. They were baptized. It was after the Lord had opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. That is Acts 16, verse 14. Then after that, Paul and Silas were in prison, and that led to the Philippian jailer and his household being saved by believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is Acts 16, verse 31. This was the beginning of the church in Philippi. They obeyed the message that Paul brought, and they were faithful doers of the word. And Paul reminds them to keep obeying the word just like they did when he was there. Paul was a strong spiritual leader to them. He was a disciple of Christ. And he wrote a big portion of the, the New Testament. He was a strong spiritual figure and it would have been easy for them to obey him when he was there with them. Having Paul present would have made the worthy walk less stressful. Imagine if Paul was here. If he was planting a church here today if he came with that authority that he did when he went to Philippi. Or if it helps, imagine if Jesus himself was walking the streets of Lacrete. And we as believers already had our eyes open to the truth of them. Wouldn't that make it less stressful? Wouldn't that make it easier to follow and to do as he said? And this was the case for the Philippians. They followed faithfully in Paul's footsteps. But now Paul says they should do the same even when he is absent. Reminding them that their motivation was to be the saving grace of Jesus Christ and not to be Paul's presence. But now Paul is in prison and he has received some less than great reports from the church. He has heard about some disunity in the church and that he was addressing here in chapter 1. And he heard about the possibility of false teachers trying to infiltrate the church in chapter 3. And then he also addressed the ongoing dispute between Euadia and Syntyche in the church in chapter 4. So when Paul says, you have, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, he is saying that their obedience 
should shine forth more than ever because their obedience is based on what Christ did for them, not based on Paul's presence, but based on them being beloved by Christ. He's reminding them it is the love of Christ that is their motivation. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly the way we need to look at our at obedience. It is never about who is present. It is about knowing what Christ has done for us and knowing that he is always present. It is not about how we look for our pastor or our families or how we look in our community or how we behave for anyone who may see us. It is always about responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's knowing that God sees the heart. And when we stand before Jesus Christ someday, we, as we just read in verse 10, that every knee will bow before him as Lord, then we want our obedience to be pure and unadulterated for our Lord and our Savior. It is to be for Christ alone, due to his love for us in making us beloved. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says here, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is the same attitude that Paul is addressing to the Philippians. It is not about obeying Paul, but about obeying, but about being obedient to Jesus Christ based on the work of Christ in their lives. Based on how far down Jesus was willing to come and how he humbled himself to the point of death for them. Beware of practicing your righteousness before people to be seen by them. We can read in Acts 16 of all the providential work that I mentioned before that the Lord did in in bringing the gospel to the Philippians and how the Lord worked behind the scenes to bring them to the knowledge of the truth. The same is true for all who will ever be born again. There is a providential work that is required and that is done by the Lord in every single believer who will, whoever has and whoever will believe in Him for their salvation. Each one is beloved by God Himself. And that should serve as the only reason we should ever need to be obedient to the Lord and His Word. And Paul is saying, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so God has done a work in you, he's telling them. And now you need to work that out in obedience to Christ. And this then brings me to the second point, which is the work of obedience. Number two is the work of obedience. Or how to be obedient. He says they must work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Still in verse 12. What, he, what is he saying here? Well, we know that from other letters that Paul wrote, and, and including even this letter to the Philippians, that he is not saying that they should work for their salvation. It's not a work required to gain salvation. In chapter 1, verse 29, he tells them it was granted to them for the sake of Christ that they should believe in him. And Ephesians 2.8 says, It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Over and over in Paul's letters to the churches, he tells us that our salvation is never earned by merit. It is always a gift from God. And so what can this mean that we are to work out our salvation? And I think it means exactly that. If we are to work something out, it implies that there's something on the inside that needs to be worked out. It means we are to work out something that is inside. We could think of it as a mine that has precious materials inside, and we are working it out of the mine. In a mine, we have to go in with picks and shovels and heavy equipment to get those valuables out of the mine, which is the same concept that applies here to our salvation. It is a precious gift a precious jewel that has been placed inside of us when the Lord saves us. The gospel has been granted to us. And God has changed our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And when the Lord grants salvation to a sinner, it comes through his word. James chapter 1, verse 21 says, Therefore put all 
put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has shown in our hearts. He has implanted his word inside of us, and that is worth more than anything else that we could ever imagine. It is worth more than all the riches of this world. But Paul also says in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so even though we have been given life on the inside by the Lord, we are still in this body of death. This will be a continuing work until the very day that we stand before our Lord and Savior. And the word used for work back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, when he says to work out your salvation, the word work means to continue. It is an ongoing work until the this sanctification is fully complete, until we stand before our Lord and Savior, and we are fully sanctified. And so we are to be obedient by continually working out this precious gift of salvation that we have on the inside. Some might think this is a contradiction. You see, some people believe we just need to trust the Lord to change our hearts. We just keep on doing kind of what we want to do, and we just let go and we let God. Sounds pretty good, right? It sounds very spiritual, actually. Let go and let God. And there might be some truth to that in the fact that we need to stop resisting God when he is drawing us unto salvation. And we need to submit to him, or we need to surrender to him as Lord and Savior of our lives. But without fail, we can read in the epistles to the churches, and we see, or in the, in the, anywhere in the Bible, and we see it as all of God. It is always followed by his commands to walk. When it comes to the work of salvation, of the saving faith in our lives, it is always God, without fail. But then he always reminds us that we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That is Ephesians 4, verse 1. Ephesians 4, verse 17 says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Ephesians 4, 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So these deceitful desires are still present in our flesh, and we need to recognize them, and we need to put them off. Ephesians 5, verse 15 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Then back to the book of Philippians in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even in tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And so we see there are two ways of walking. We can walk as enemies or we can walk as children of Christ. Then turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, or Colossians chapter 3, sorry. It's the book right after Philippians. If you go to Colossians chapter 3, in verse 1, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above and not on the things that are on earth. And I don't know if I can put it more plainly than Paul says here to the Colossians. We must walk. We must put on. We must work out this salvation that has been put inside of us. We must set our minds on the things that are above until the completion when we stand face to face with our Lord. I could go on for a long time with scriptures calling us to this worthy walk. So much of God's word is filled with the call to walk worthy. It's filled with commands on how we are to live our lives and how we are to bring glory to the Lord and how we live. So we see these works. 
do not bring about salvation, but it is a result of salvation. And so when we think about what the work of obedience looks like, we can see from the word of God that we have a clear direction to walk in a certain way that reflects the work of Christ in us. So if we go back to Philippians chapter 2 then, when uh, <clears throat> in Philippians 2, what Paul is saying, what is Paul saying here to the Philippians then? When, we, when he says, walk in a worthy manner. No, sorry. When he says, work out your salvation. What is Paul saying here to the Philippians? How are they to do this? He says, to work out your own salvation. And he says, with fear and with trembling. So first of all, he makes this personal. He says, your own salvation. Individuals are saved. It is up to them to work it out. Your own salvation. It is a personal call to holiness. John MacArthur in, the, in his commentary on Philippians said, the command for his, for, is for believers to make continuing, sustained effort to work out to ultimate completion their salvation, which has been graciously granted to them by God through their faith in Jesus Christ. End quote. Individual believers are called to work this out. To the Corinthians, Paul says in First Corinthians 9, verse 24, he says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it for an imperishable. It is a disciplined life. It is a well-laid-out plan to walk worthy of the life for which we have been called to as believers. And But again, here in our text today, Paul says, to do this with fear and with trembling in 2 verse 12. He's pointing again back to the reverence that is due the Lord, a reverence of a holy God whom we will stand before when we enter eternity. And Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. This is not a fear of him taking away something that he has given to us as believers. It is, a, it is a reverent fear. It is a holy concern to give God the honor he deserves and avoid God's discipline. A fear that motivates us to walk worthy of the call for which we have been called. Another commentary on Philippians I read was J. Mueller. And he's, for an example of fear and trembling, he said, quote, conscience conscious of their own insignificance and weakness and sinfulness and fallibility, and full of trembling and a holy fear before God whose will is to be done, and for whose honor they have to work, and to whom an account will be given. Quote. So what he is saying is fear and trembling demonstrates we understand our weakness, and we understand the shame we bring him when we do anything but bring honor that is due to him as Lord. A deep reverence and a love for the Lord should cause us to shudder and tremble at the thought of dishonoring him. Proverbs 28 verse 14 says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Hebrews 12 verse 28 says, If we, we are to offer to God acceptable worship, with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. And so we are to work out our salvation. It has been placed in us by the Lord, and we are to do it with fear and trembling, awe and reverence of a holy God. So how is that possible? And that brings me to the next point, which Paul addresses here. And he points them to the source of this obedience. He shows them Number three on your outline, the source of obedience. This is in verse 13. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We may, tempted, we may be tempted to say again, we have a contradiction here. First, Paul tells us to work out our own salvation. It is, all, it is our responsibility. Now here he says, it is God who is working in us. What is it? Is it us or is it God? And the answer is both. 
And the Bible is clear that we are to walk and to work and to obey God and to do His commands as He commands us, but it is also equally clear that it is only by God working in us that we can do anything at all that will bring glory to the Lord. It is His implanted Word in us that brings us from death to life. Therefore, it is all of God. Turn with me to John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus himself gives us a great example of how this works. And it is, in fact, no contradiction at all. In John chapter 15, and starting in verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, He it is that bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Again, I don't know if there could be a better way to explain that God is at work in us. And it is only as a result of that very thing that we can do anything at all in our lives to walk worthy or to bring glory to God through anything that we do. In Romans chapter 11, we have a a metaphor in there that explains how we are grafted into the tree of life. We are dead branches. There is no hope of bearing fruit for the Lord until we have been placed or we have been grafted into the tree of life, which is Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 2 verse 1 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So we are dried up dead branches with no life in us at all. We will not and we cannot bear fruit unless we abide in God and He in us. And so Philippians 2 verse 13 shows us that it is only because of the work of God in us that we have any ability to work out our own salvation. To work out our salvation is only possible if God first works in us. And Paul reminded the Philippians of this in in chapter 1 verse 29, that the ability to believe in Christ or to suffer for him was because it has been granted to them pointing to the source of our saving faith. And here in chapter 2, verse 13, he's pointing to the source of our ability to work out our own salvation. And so chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, and chapter 2, verse 13, show us that there is a proper balance that needs to be understood regarding Christians growing in sanctification. There is very often two extremes when it comes to sanctification. Either it becomes a works-based salvation, where people believe it is their own power to live for the Lord, it is in their own power to live for the Lord, and it is fully dependent on themselves. This is sometimes known as pietism. The other extreme view is we let go and we let God. Or I can't, God can. In this view, we have no responsibility. We just coast along and do nothing to grow in holiness. It takes all the responsibility off man. And this is sometimes known as quietism. But here in Philippians, Paul gives us a balanced view, which is when we read through the scriptures, we will be presented with time and time again. Verse 12, Paul gave the believers responsibility to work out their salvation. And here in verse 13, we see the only reason we can or even have an ability to work out our salvation is because the Lord is working within. While the believer is working out, God is working in. And when we consider this statement, it should cause all believers to shudder. It should cause us to shudder at the very thought that the God of this universe, the God of heaven and earth, is working in us. God himself is doing a work in our lives. For it is God who works in you. The creator of all things, the all-knowing God, who knows all the wicked deeds we have ever done, He even knows the wicked thoughts that have crossed our minds. The God who holds the whole universe in his hand, and yet he is mindful of us. We are the lowest of the beings. We are sinners, and we are born in rebellion to God. He could and deservingly so send us all to an eternal hell to pay for our sins. It is he who has placed us in him. He has connected us 
as dead branches into the lifeline that is him. He is the vine. We are the branches. And it is only through him that we have any life at all. The living God is working in us. He works in our hearts to change us into God-honoring, God-glorifying beings whom he will and he does use to bring glory to himself. This is the greatest miracle of all, brothers and sisters. This is the greatest miracle the Lord has ever done when we consider that. He has connected us as believers. We are connected to Jesus Christ. We were dead and we now have life in him. We were dead branches and now we have the unbelievable honor of bearing fruit and the flowers of a beautiful blooming fruit tree in the spring. We have an awesome opportunity to bear fruit of that vine and display it to this world. The incredible display of God working in us as these flowers that turn into refreshing fruit that God uses to feed others. He uses our fruit. He uses us to nourish the hungering, to bring this gospel to others, to bring life to other dead branches and then connect them to himself as well. This really should blow our minds. It should cause us to shudder again. This is the greatest responsibility that we as believers could ever have. What an opportunity to serve the Lord with an understanding that he is working in us. Knowing that the source of our ability to serve Christ is from Christ himself. We are not just in Christ, but he is in us. He abides in us and we abide in him. And so Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it is, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. So not only does the desire to do God's will come from him, but also the power and the ability to do the will of God comes from God. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And he does that for all believers. We are called to work out what God is doing inside. God sets our wills and our, and our desires to work out this salvation. So the Lord God is our source of obedience and sanctification. He is our source. And there should be much comfort in that. And then we go to my last point, number four. We have the result of this kind of obedience that leads to sanctification. So we have number four, the result of obedience. And again, this is in verse 13. It says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. The result of our obedience, sanctification, is it brings pleasure to our Lord. Would that not be the greatest thing of comfort that we could possibly have in this life? Wouldn't that be the greatest thing of comfort? To know that in some way that our lives are pleasing to the Lord and they're bringing pleasure to our Lord? That is the result of obedient sanctification in our lives. It is for God's, for the Lord's good pleasure. And in Luke chapter 2, from verses 22 to 31, we can read about how we are not to be anxious, how, the, how God takes care of us in every way. We need not worry about our daily needs, he says, as the Father knows them and he cares for us. But then in, in Luke chapter 12 and verse 32, it says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It pleases God to give us eternal life with Him. It pleases Him when we grow in sanctification. It is for His pleasure and we are, that we are saved, and it is for His pleasure that we work out our salvation. And it is for his pleasure that he works in us and he gives us the ability to work out our salvation. And it is to the glory of God the Father. It is to the glory of God our Father. And so we have seen the reason for obedience. We have seen, second, the work of obedience. We have seen the source of our obedience. And we, re and we see the result of our obedience. 
So in conclusion, we should consider how this would look in each one of our lives day to day. What does this look like during the week for us? How do we go about working out what God is doing in us? And I believe it is really quite simple. Through his grace, God has given us opportunities to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have a responsibility to put ourselves into these means of grace that will cause us to grow in holiness. I want to read a paragraph from Mike Riccardi's book titled, Sanctification, the Christian's Pursuit of God-Given Holiness. He says, You see, human beings can't make grass grow. We can't wave our hands and make the land sprout fruit and vegetables. That is God's work. And yet nobody would suggest that a responsible farmer should simply sit back and wait for his land to magically yield crops as a result of divine fate. No, God has ordained to bring forth the produce of the earth by means of the farmer's labors. In the same way, we cannot change our own hearts to make ourselves more holy. Sanctification is a supernatural, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit of God. But God has ordained that the Spirit accomplish this glorious work through means. End quote. He then goes on to list these means of grace in his book that the Lord has given us to grow in sanctification. And I want to briefly go through these means of grace, and I want us to think about how we can apply these or pursue these in our lives, not only this week, but for the rest of our lives as believers in Christ. And so the first means of grace is the grace, the first means of his grace is scripture. God has given us scripture. He has given us his word, the word of God. And we have the freedom to read it every day and to study it. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 1 Peter 2 verse 2 says, Like newborn infants, I long, or he says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. The milk referred to here is the word of God. God has given us the pure word of God. So by it we may grow. So we must be in the Word. We must study the Word of God. The Lord will use it to grow us in holiness and in sanctification. The Lord will give us the tools needed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling when we read and we study His Word. Our Bibles can't sit on a shelf and collect dust. We can't just rely on our pastor's messages on Sundays or midweek Bible studies. We have God's word, and we need to be reading it, getting to know it. It is God's grace in our lives to have his word right in our hands, and we need to read it. It is a means of God's grace that we have his word. The second means of grace that God has given us is he's given us the means to come to him in prayer. Luke 11, verse 9 says, Jesus says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. James chapter 4, verse 2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. And we saw earlier how the source of our sanctification is the Lord. He, it is God who works in us, both to will and to work. And so we must then pray and to Him, and we must ask Him to continue this work. In 1 John 1.9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So prayer is an incredible means of God's grace. The Lord has given us the means to come to Him in prayer, and it is a means of His grace. We can and we must pray to the Lord as we seek to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This must be a big part of our relationship with Christ is coming to him in prayer. The third means of grace 
that he mentioned here is fellowship. Fellowship is a means of God's grace. The local church and all that the church is called to do together means is a means of God's grace. It is a gift of grace from the Lord to have fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. So this happens within the local church. God has provided a place where we are to practice the one another's in the scriptures. This is where iron sharpens iron, as we read about in 20, Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. We can sit under faithful preaching of God's word in the local church. Where faithful men who are called by God to serve and to feed the sheep, the milk and the meat of the word, either Sunday mornings through reading and preaching of God's word or midweek Bible studies or the one-on-one meetings, the local church is a means of God's grace. And we must put ourselves in those means, in the means of grace. And this is why he calls us not to forsake the local gathering. The church is the bride of Christ. It is his people. And he tells us to not forsake the church in Hebrews. To attend the local church on Sundays, midweek Bible studies, these things must be a priority in our lives. And when we commit to the local church and we serve with our gifts within that local body, it is a very practical way and a very important way that we can work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. It truly is God's gift of grace to the believer and it needs to be a priority. God commands us to not forsake it. It is that important. A maturing Christian will no doubt be connected or plugged into a local godly church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul tells the Ephesian church that the Lord gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the statures of the fullness of Christ. Grace Bible Fellowship is a means of grace that the Lord has given to us as a gift to grow in our sanctification and to work out our salvation. The local church is a means of God's grace. And we must put ourselves in that means. The fourth means of grace is God's providence. God's providence. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That means that God uses all things. All things in our life, whether good or bad, and he uses them for our good. For those who are called according to his purpose, he uses all things to conform us into his image. Is that not the ultimate desire for all believers? To be like Christ, to grow in our, to imitate Christ, to be conformed into his image? And here we see that God does all these things for that very purpose in the life of the believer. So God's providence means is a means of grace that we can fully rely on to work out our salvation. We must trust in the work of God in our lives. No matter what the circumstances are, we are called to trust in the providential work of the Lord in our lives. Just like the providential work that God did in the Philippian church. And how he worked providentially in Paul's life to bring Paul, to bring the word of God to the Philippian church. That's how that church was born. He is providentially working in each one of our lives as believers to grow us and to conform us into his image. If you are a believer, then God is providentially working in your life 
to conform you into his image. So we must trust him. We must trust the Lord because he is working. And we have his word on it. The fifth means of grace is obedience. Obedience is a means of grace that God has given us. And John chapter 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Lord has given the believers a helper, the Holy Spirit, and it is by the grace of God that we can and we need to have, and we need to be obedient. We need to be obedient to his word. And we can. We have the ability to. God has given us all these things And it is then very doable to grow in holiness. We can put off sin and put on Christ. We can walk worthy in a worthy manner and truly honor the Lord. Because he has provided a way for us to accomplish that. We can obey. We can work out our salvation by the grace of God. And we must do so in all humility. And from a sincere heart of gratitude towards our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For what he ultimately did for us. It is a result of that. And so this week, if we want to grow in obedience, if we want to grow in our obedience sanctification, then read your Bibles. Study it. Get to know what God's Word says. Pray for wisdom. James 1.5 says, God generously gives wisdom to all who ask. That is God's word to us. Be in fellowship with your brothers and sisters. And I would say especially those of your local church. Let iron sharpen iron. Be committed to the church and be plugged into the church. Seek to serve one another within the church. And then be obedient to God's word. And trust the Lord. With all your heart, with all your mind, trust the Lord. These are the means of grace from the Lord to the believers. And if we place ourselves in these means of grace, we will see the work of the Lord manifest itself in obedient sanctification in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we are so blessed just to know you as our Lord. For those that do, Lord, we are, we are blessed beyond measure just to be able to call you our Savior. We are grateful for all the means of grace that you have provided for us to work out our salvation in a God-honoring, in a God-glorifying way. Help us, Father, to be mindful of all these things and help us to be obedient in sanctification, in the sanctification process that you alone have started, and that you are continuing to do in each and every believer's life. Father, we pray, if there is someone here this morning who does not trust in you for their salvation, then I ask that you would just open their eyes to the truth of your word, even this morning, that your implanted word would draw them unto yourself. And I pray that we, who have believed who believe in you for, as our Savior, Lord, that we would all be motivated to work out our salvation because of the knowledge of what you have done for us. May that be our motivation to continually work and go and so do to grow in holiness all that we can and trusting you that you are working on the inside. Father, we just thank you for your word this morning and we commit this to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.